each of the speakers will speak for 10 minutes, and they'll speak in the order shown here, which is Dr. Giraldi, Fauzi, El Asmar, Mark Perry, Jeffrey Steinberg, and then Norton Mezvinsky, who is the president of the International Council for Middle East Studies, he will make a comment. Uh, I'll try to hold everyone to 10 minutes so that there is half an hour for the rest of you. And I think at that point, um, I, maybe I should mention the title of this program, um, Dynamics of Palestine in the Coming Arab and UN Seasons. I suppose this refers to the one hand on the implications of what we call the Arab Spring in the United States. And the UN season, I suppose, is the uh, expected introduction of something in the United Nations with respect to Palestine to either become an observer, a state, or something within the UN system. So that's what this is about. Uh, and at this point, uh, let me turn the program over to Dr. Giraldi. Thank you. What do you want to do with the mic? Put it over here, or? Yeah. Yeah. Michelle Bachman moment. <laughs> okay, is that good? All right. Um, I want to briefly explore two aspects of the impending Palestinian application for United States full membership, United Nations full membership, and the likelihood that the United States will use its Security Council veto to stop the process. Some are arguing that Washington, which has not said explicitly that it will use the veto, might actually abstain from the process, thereby gaining considerable favorable sentiment from much of the world and also sending a signal to Israel that there are limits to the bilateral relationship. I would argue instead that Washington has certainly stated over and over that it will protect Israel in international fora, and any expectation that President Obama might waver in that policy, either because it is the right thing to do or because it benefits the U.S. is fanciful, particularly with the presidential election looming in 2012. So let us assume that Palestine will seek full UN membership as the world's 194th nation and that Washington will then veto the application. My first question then has to be whether the entire process has any meaning at all or is it just kabuki? I think you have to judge the process by looking at what might be described as the collateral damage as depicted by the other players in the statehood bid. Israel has been working hard to stop the process or at worst to mitigate its impact by having a number of important nations, mostly in Europe, either abstain on the vote or vote no. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu made a glad hand tour of European capitals earlier this year with that express purpose, and he received positive signals from the Italians and Germans, though it is by no means clear how they will vote. It was for Israel a top national priority, a view that was conveyed, conveyed clearly to its friends in the United States. Washington, at the urging of Israel, also joined in the effort, starting with hints early this year to Latin American nations that recognizing Palestine as a state might have adverse economic consequences. More recently, the State Department and White House have repeatedly expressed their desire that the Palestinians shelve their plans to seek a UN seat, and they have been assiduously working behind the scenes to convince the Palestinian leadership to cease and desist. The dialogue has been given some teeth by Congress, which is determined to cut off all aid to Palestine if the UN action goes through. One congressman, Joe Walsh of Illinois, is preparing a, no a motion that will provide congressional support for an Israeli annexation of much of the West Bank if the Palestinians proceed, 
Walsh describes as a Palestinian state as absolutely outrageous. So Israel sees the Palestinian plan as a major threat and the United States appears to be on board. Now many would observe at this point that Israel often cries wolf and greatly exaggerates what it perceives as threats against it. Is that true in this case, making it just another instance where Tel Aviv is adopting an extreme position in hopes that Washington will deliver the goods? I think that Israel sees danger precisely because the Palestinian bid would do a couple of things that call into question some significant aspects of the status quo. First of all, since it will certainly pass with a huge majority in the General Assembly, it would provide overwhelming international confirmation of Palestinian rights with the U.S. and Israel isolated and standing on the wrong side on the issue. It would also severely undermine Israel's moral position, such as it is, and emphasize the illegality of the Israeli occupation of parts of the West Bank. The process is already illegal in the eyes of the rest of the world, including the United States, but it would be even less tenable if a convincing majority of the world's countries recognized Palestine as a state with defined borders and a national identity. Second, recognition of statehood carries with it recognition that the state exists within the 1967 borders. This has enormous significance because those borders include many areas being colonized by the Israelis as well as East Jerusalem. It means that any Israeli settlement that is on the other side of the border is considered completely illegal and that Israel is therefore a rogue state that is occupying and settling lands belonging to a neighboring state 44 years after the cessation of hostilities. Even the New York Times, uh, in an article last Sunday on the recent unrest in Egypt, noting that Islamic groups were not involved, conceded that criticism of Israel has a basis in the widespread popular perception that, quote, Muslims, Arabs, and indeed many around the globe believe Israel is unjustly occupying Palestinian territories, and they are furious at Israel for it. The rejection of Palestinian statehood and the debate surrounding it will only heighten that sentiment. But even conceding all of that, the UN membership doesn't change anything on the ground or result in meaningful action against Israel. Well, not exactly. If the Palestinians are in the United Nations as a full member, they will have access to the International Criminal Court in The Hague, where they can take legal steps against Israel and against individual Israelis. Even though Israel doesn't recognize the legitimacy of the court, when it reaches the point where no senior Israeli government official present or retired, can travel without concern over being arrested, it will have a major impact on how Israel sees itself and how the rest of the world sees Israel. The clear depiction of Israel as an occupying power in violation of the Geneva Conventions, to which most of the world's nations are signatories, would also fuel the Israel divestment campaign, which is another major concern of the Israeli government, and also legitimately so, as it could have a devastating impact on the Israeli economy. The Palestinians would also be able to appeal to UNESCO, for example, to stop the Israeli demolition of Muslim and Arab historical sites and the renaming of villages and other landmarks, uh, which would be a con considerable benefit. So Israel is right in understanding that the UN entry could have a profound impact. Now I am going to speak briefly about how the United States national interest will be damaged by exercising its veto. Policymakers in Washington, like Joe Walsh, whom I cited above, forget Newton's third law of, no of motion, though it is assuming that they haven't ever heard of Newton. 
Newton said that every action produces an equal and opposite reaction. It is true in international relations, just as it is true in, in physics. Only in the real world, it has come to be known as blowback. What would be the possible blowback from an American veto? John Whitbeck has correctly described a veto by Washington as, quote, a shotgun blast at both of its own feet. The United, the United States is already perceived negatively in every Arab nation except Kuwait. It is seen as, on one hand, supporting the liberal, liberaliz liberalization and democratization of some Arab governments, while at the same time suppressing fundamental rights in places like Palestine. That unfortunately well-deserved perception of blatant hypocrisy will alienate emerging Arab Spring regimes even more from Washington and will almost certainly lead to violence, possibly extreme, in places like Egypt, Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Turkey. American goods and services will, as a consequence, undoubtedly become less welcome in many parts of the world. The U.S. veto will inevitably provide a recruiting bonanza for groups that use terror. American travelers will be less safe when they go abroad, and American soldiers stationed in foreign lands will inevitably become targets of militants, inspired by yet another example of Washington's hypocrisy. Saudi Arabia has already warned that the U.S. veto will do irreparable damage to its bilateral relationship with Washington and will also forever destroy America's, I'm finished, I'm just sitting here, America's reputation in the Arab world. It would hasten the development of the clash of civilizations, us and them, point of view dividing much of the developing world from Washington and Europe. And finally, it is the ultimate irony that the U.S. veto will do more long-term damage both to Israel and the United States than would, would the acceptance of full Palestinian sovereignty and statehood, which would give Israel a genuine negotiating partner and go far towards the restoring the reputation of the United States of America. Thank you. In fact, I, uh, I have some, okay, I had some problem how to uh, put this uh, subject together. I'm a Palestinian, and when I talk about the Palestinian problem, I, I talk about my experience, my people, my family. So I will not go into the, uh, all the details about the United Nations and so on. Uh, but I will throw a question. Does the Palestinian people deserve a state? I think yes, they deserve a state. And what they are doing now, going to the United Nations, is part of the long struggle that they uh, started it since we lost Palestine. And uh, uh, we tried a lot of methods, uh, starting from uh, not recognizing Israel and uh, destroying Israel and negotiation. And, uh, you know, I don't want to go into that because you already know. And if we can get at the United Nations, I mean, at, uh, as, as it was said, at the uh, Security Council, I don't think that we have a hope there. A General Assembly, yes, but still, 
I mean, what we get in the General Assembly, we get uh, a state, uh, uh, what do you call it, a state, uh, non-state, non uh, uh, not member state, or you know, something like that, like the Vatican, like Switzerland before, Taiwan before, and so on. But that's that will help us. That will help us to continue, and that's very important. That's that's very important to us. In in fact, the uh, uh, the uh, the uh, the recognition at at at, at the United Nations is it will be like an uh, acknowledgement of reality, and not making reality. Reality is there. We are there. Uh, generations and generations, and we live there, and uh, you know. Uh, so we need that for this purpose. Uh, now, uh, I don't know if if you had a chance to read the article of uh, uh, Prince Turkey El Faisal. He said something very important. He said something to the United States. Uh, and to the uh, administration. They said that you are going to lose your credibility if you will not uh, recognize the Palestinian state or if you vote against the Palestinian state. In fact, that's correct going not just for, the, for Saudi Arabia, which uh, does goes for all the Arab countries, I mean the, the the cure problem of uh, of uh, the main problem of uh, in the Middle East is the Palestinian problem, and anybody who wants to gain the sympathy and uh, support and uh, of the people of the Middle East, I'm not talking about the uh, leadership, has to go through the uh, through the. Uh, uh, the Palestinian problem. And the Palestinian problem is that Turkey found out that that's the way if they want to get into the mind and, uh, as, as I say, mind and, uh, and, and heart of the, of the Arab people, they have to go through the Palestinian problem. So, so Iran, so uh, even uh, the regimes now that start emerging in, uh, in, in, in Egypt and uh, other Arab countries, this is the uh, the, the major thing. Now, for a while, they thought that the Palestinian, the Palestinian uh, problem is, uh, is 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 out of the uh, of the scene, or it it uh, it's already in the number three or four in in in, in the world uh, uh, problems that they have to deal with, but in fact, they found out now that this is not correct. You cannot have peace in the Middle East without solving the Palestinian problem. Without solving the Palestinian, all the Palestinian problem. I mean, now we get to the point, uh, does the uh, Palestinian state solve the Palestinian problem? I don't think so. I mean, a Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza, regardless of how, how they defined it, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's not going, it, it, it could solve partially the uh, problem of the people 
in the West Bank and in Gaza, but it's not the Palestinian, the Palestinian people. Uh, we uh, we have a lot of uh, a lot of things that has to be solved to reach the point, and we can say the Palestinian problem is solved. I mean, you can't solve the Palestinian problem without solving the refugee problems, or compensation, or uh, the uh, uh, borders, or the, of course, the, I call them colonies, or the settlements that they call here. Uh, all this has to be solved if you want to talk about solving the Palestinian problem. But uh, the, uh, the, 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 main, the main thing here is we have two obstacles. First of all, the United States. The United States is not, the United States, in fact, implementing the Israeli policy toward the Palestinian problem or anything concerning in the Middle East. And then we have the Israeli government. Now, I'm a person who reads the Hebrew papers and I uh, daily. I'm not just talking about Haaris, but with Mariv and Idiot and, and, and others. And I can, I can see how the, even the people in Israel start shouting and saying, Netanyahu, you have to recognize the Palestinian state. You have, we are, uh, we are tired of carrying this load on our, we, on our back. We want to live in peace. Now, uh, the idea of one state is getting more and more into the, uh, into the Israeli-Jewish uh, society in Israel. And they look at it as, you know, uh, a, a possibility since uh, the, the, the Israeli government is not ready to compromise on anything and they they can look at it and say either we have, we are going to lose everything or we are going to compromise. The compromise has to live with the Palestinians. Now, the, uh, the, Israeli, uh, the Israeli government, I didn't think I'd take that long. Uh, <laughs> the Israeli government, uh, the stubbornness of, of the government has Different dimension, but one dimension that is not mentioned here. The Palestinians uh, in 1988 recognized that Palestine belonged to two peoples. Until this minute, Israel did not recognize that mandatory Palestine belonged to two peoples, which means that any compromise from the Israeli government, it means they have to compromise with their Zionist ideology that Eretz Israel belongs to one people. And, and that's difficult for, in, in, in fact, it was difficult since the establishment of the state. I mean, with the laborers and, and now the right wing and the Likud, all of them, until today, they did not recognize that the Palestinians has right in the West Bank, in Gaza, in Palestine. If this will not be solved, I don't see neither the United Nations or any other solution without taking this in consideration could be implemented. Thank you. Thank you, Father.
Mr. Denti, I'm sure you all will have many questions and answers, and we're going to save them until we're finished with the panel. So please make notes as you go along so that uh, you won't just ask the last speaker. Um, our next speaker is Mark Perry. Um, Mark is uh, asked to hit cleanup, so. Jeff Steinberg is on. Yes. <laughs> I was mistaken. But I beg your pardon. Couldn't have a good night Jeff Steinberg. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, knowing uh, the other members of the panel and knowing that the uh, title of this discussion today was Five Perspectives, uh, I kind of had a feeling that there would not really be fistfights here uh, in disagreement among us. So what We're I'd like to... Hmm? We're not done yet. I know. <laughs> so what I wanted to do is actually... Uh, take a step back and present a, a larger perspective from which the upcoming events at the United Nations and beyond that are going to be taking place. Because here in Washington, far too often, uh, a long process is something that takes 48 hours. And uh, I think that there's a tendency to miss the fact that there have been some really dramatic and sweeping developments on a global scale and within the parameters of the Middle East that are, in my view, irreversible and will change very much the parameters in which the next phase of the Palestinian fight for uh, a state and for justice will be taking place. I want to run quickly through five of those uh, dramatic changes. Um, first of all, to just state the obvious, the uh, preoccupation at this point throughout the transatlantic region is not on the Middle East, is not on the Palestinian issue, uh, but is on a uh, profound financial and economic crisis that is the overwhelming issue of concern for current governments. Uh, it may be the cause of uh, some significant government changes in a relatively short period of time. It's questionable whether the Merkel government in Germany is going to survive the vote on the uh, European Financial Stability Fund, uh, both here in the United States and in Europe. There's a desperation to continue to see flows of foreign funds uh, into both commercial and government bond markets so that the relative leverage of countries like China, and Saudi Arabia, and even perhaps Japan, uh, will be greatly enhanced. And the ability of the United States and the Europeans to see eye to eye and use coordinated economic muscle as part of the political clout uh, is already significantly diminished. And that process, uh, barring a rather dramatic change in policy, is going to continue into the foreseeable future. So you've got significant shifts there. Secondly, after the initial expectations, particularly after President Obama's Cairo speech, uh, there is a general recognition, I think internationally, that the Obama administration has absolutely failed in its uh, Middle East diplomacy, particularly on the Israel-Palestine issue. Um, uh, my wife, a number of years ago, uh, did a very careful read of George Mitchell's account of how he negotiated the Irish 
settlement, the Northern Ireland settlement. And he made the point that, number one, he had the complete and absolute backing of the president, had access to the president on a daily basis, and that he chose a single issue to draw the line, which was on the question of uh, the disarmament issue. And it took him years and years to achieve a breakthrough on that. But once the breakthrough was achieved, uh, it was a very short time before the uh, final uh, agreements were reached. And so it was a lesson that he brought into his Middle East assignment. And very rapidly, he found the support eroding behind him on the issue of a freeze on Israeli settlement. So in my view, things have gone from bad to worse in terms of the uh, US diplomatic posture. And now uh, you've got a presidential election season that is fully underway, particularly since Labor Day. And that will be uh, a constant factor in determining what seems politically practical as US foreign policy. And it's going to be basically a function of domestic electoral politics. So the expectation, uh, as uh, Phil Giraldi, I think, laid out very clearly, that the United States is going to take a moral stand or shift policy in any way going into the United Nations and coming out of it, I think, is absolutely clear. And the, the parade of Dennis Ross and Tony Blair running around uh, a minute before midnight trying to convince the Palestinians to back off at the General Assembly is just indicative of that. The third thing is that there's been a dramatic change in uh, the US relationship with uh, many, if not all, of the major players in the Middle East. Um, the US-Saudi relationship uh, is uh, deeply frayed, even at a point that we're increasingly dependent on the Saudis continuing to finance our debt and uh, things like that. Um, part of it is still the aftermath of 9-11, but part of it is the Saudis reaching the point of saying that the United States is not prepared to function as an honest broker in the Middle East, especially on the Palestinian issue. Um, you have a transition underway in Egypt, which is hard to predict the outcome of, but certainly the entire framework of the Egypt-Israeli relationship uh, is on the line at this point, and I don't think anybody can speak with certainty about what the outcome will be there. Uh, Turkey is reemerging uh, as a country that is not begging hat in hand to be admitted to the European Christian Club and uh, is playing a much more vibrant role in the region as well. And uh, this has obviously created a substantial rift in the Turkish-Israeli relationship. And we'll see how that plays out in terms of the relationship with the United States. Then we come to the US-Israel relationship. Um, and I think that it has to be looked at from two standpoints. The United States is a country that has po politics and also has other more durable governing institutions. And um, I was very struck in June of 2010 when the Israeli ambassador to the United States, Michael Oren, uh, made a kind of an emergency trip back to Israel and made a presentation that was immediately leaked out to the Israeli press in which he warned that the US-Israel relationship
was going through a uh, tectonic shift. Uh, it was misinterpreted as a tectonic rift, and there were all kinds of efforts to explain it away as if it didn't happen. But tectonic shift is a pretty significant event. And what Oren was reflecting was the fact that uh, U.S. institutions, uh, separate from the Congress, separate even from the Obama executive branch, uh, were publicly speaking out in an unprecedented fashion uh, about the fact that Israel was becoming a strategic liability for the United States, not a strategic asset. You had testimony before the United States Senate by General Petraeus when he was the head of the Central Command in March or April, and afterwards he walked back for political reasons, but nevertheless, as Mark Perry knows quite well, uh, the, the feelings are there within the ranks of the top military that uh, things have changed dramatically. I won't read the quote from it, but probably many of you remember a June 2nd commentary by Tony Cordesman headlined, Israel as a Strategic Liability. So there are other reasons as well. The Cold War has been over for 20 years. Uh, Israel played a certain strategic role during the Cold War, in effect as a U.S. and NATO second strike capability in the Middle East. There's no reasonable explanation why Israel built up an arsenal of 200 nuclear warheads uh, to deal with security threats within the region. It wasn't just an overkill deterrent, deterrent, but it was part of a Western strategy. And that game is over, and it's been over now for almost a full generation. Um, so all of these things uh, taken into account, um, we're really moving into a very different situation. I'm not going to try to present some kind of Ouija board guess about what's going to happen uh, next week at the United Nations because uh, there is an enormous arm-twisting operation going on right now, and it's only deepening the rifts with the Saudis, the Arab League, Turkey lining up on one side, and apparently the United States lining up exclusively with Israel, and not even Europe is united. There's no united European position on what the vote is going to be at the General Assembly. So I, I think it's just worthwhile uh, to take note of all of these factors and to be very optimistic that um, we're in a different situation in which if people appreciate these factors, there are a lot of flanks that can be played to at least achieve some semblance of justice in this case of the Palestinians. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, I had to, uh, several years ago, give a talk at a conference of historians on something. And uh, I went to the moderator of the panel and I said, you know, I don't think I have anything to add, really, to this subject. And he said, um, talk about Hitler. <laughs> I said, what? And he said, oh, people love to hear about Hitler. Talk about, talk about Hitler. I said, you know, it is true, right? So, and John Duke Anthony was kind enough to invite me to this conference, and I said to him, I don't really think I have anything to add to this topic. He said, sure you do, and I, and I remember this anecdote, and I went back and read Hannah Arendt's The Origins of Totalitarianism, when she talks about, in which she talks about statelessness. Now, this was a 
gripping subject for the international community after World War I, statelessness, and what to do with stateless people because there were Czechs. At the end of World War I, there were Czechs in Germany, there were Poles in Germany, there were Germans in Poland, there were French in Germany, and there were a lot, you know, Europe was an orphanage and a mess. Um, and the international community had to come up with a mechanism to deal with the question of the stateless people, and they determined that if you were, in general, the general rule in international norms would be that if you were a Czech in Germany, you had the rights of a Czech citizen. If you were a German in Czechoslovakia, you had the rights of a, of a, of a, of a German citizen, so on and so forth. Uh, but what the international community didn't do is that they didn't deal with people who were from nowhere. That is to say, who didn't have a country. Uh, Anna, Hannah Arendt's point was that it, is, it was interesting that before Hitler decided to kill, kill the Jews, he first stripped them of their citizenship. They weren't, they didn't have rights, he said, because they didn't have a state. And Arendt makes the point that the primary and first and dominant right of any people is the right to a state. It precedes all other rights, and it defends all of the rights that you have. Well, the Palestinians don't have a state, but Obama is now in this odd position of saying that they have rights. And he's been hammering at this for three years now about the rights of the Palestinian people. But the first and the primary right, which he doesn't support, is the right to a state. And I think that's the kind of the quandary that he's put himself into that the Palestinians have, of course, barely mentioned. The Palestinians. And it puts Netanyahu in a quandary because the history of the Jewish people is a history of a people without a state. And therefore, as their persecutors have said, a people who don't have rights. And we said this about Al-Qaeda. George Bush said this. He, they don't come from anywhere. They're outside the law. International law doesn't apply to them. So now we have an odd situation where we have a president of the United States who's making the argument of George Bush. Palestinians are stateless people and ought to stay that way, unless, of course, this is my second major point, we mediate their future. Well, one of the things that Mahmoud Abbas has done in this is he has, I think, put an exclamation point to the end of the Oslo process. It's done. He has rejected and repudiated the idea that the United States is the sole, fair, open, important mediator of the Israeli-Palestinian dispute. That's not true. This isn't, just about, this isn't just about statehood. This is a key moment for Palestinians, I would argue, because it's a repudiation of the idea that the United States can bring about their state. Oslo has failed. The Obama administration has failed. But when I hear the kind of endless arguments about international law, votes, and the General Assembly, will the Palestinians take, be able now to take the Israelis to the International Criminal Court? The Palestinians aren't going to take the Israelis to the International Criminal Court. That's not why they're doing this. They're not doing this so that they can have their flag at the UN. They've got their flag at the UN. It's not that they want people to pay attention to them or that they want to petition for their rights, that's useless. So why is Mahmoud Abbas doing this? 
Why is he doing it? And I think in reading over the last 24 hours, the Palestinian press, not the American press, not the Hebrew press, but the Palestinian press, there's some interesting kind of reflections on why Mahmoud Abbas would be doing this. He's doing this in the midst of the Arab Spring. The Libyans, the Tunisians, the Egyptians, the Syrians are all fighting within their societies for their rights, and the only ones that aren't are the Palestinians. We have a simmering, meanwhile, in the West Bank, a March 15th movement that has no outlet that can go to the streets to protest. What? He can capture this movement for Fatah, for his party, and for him. He can be the rallying point now around which Palestinian society organizes itself politically. Number two, he can respond to Salam Fayyad. Salam Fayyad is this great idea for a state. He's building state institutions. In many ways, he's captured the imagination of the international community by building states. And now Mahmoud Abbas, by doing this, has recaptured the, inter the international attention, the attention of the international community, away from Fayyad. This is why Fayyad is grumbling about this quietly, but he's grumbling about it. Number three, he can respond to Hamas. Hamas has created a state for all intents and purposes in Gaza, and they have the respect of the Israelis. If you go talk to the Israelis about what they're really afraid of, they're not afraid of Mahmoud Abbas. They think he's weak. They say, ah, oh, he's so weak. They don't say that about Hamas. So this is leverage against Hamas inside the Palestinian polity. I think there's a fourth reason. The Palestine Papers. The Palestine Papers showed the fecklessness of the Palestinian negotiating position and the willingness of the Palestinian negotiators to give up anything. It was an embarrassment for Mahmoud Abbas. It's now been eclipsed. He's showing the world just how tough he can be. He stood up to the Americans. He stood up to the Israelis. Number five, he can peel away part of the European community. He can take some of the European states and divide the EU, and he's done it. Nine European states now uh, support Palestinian statehood. That's an incredible accomplishment on his part. He can rebuild his own political party, Fatah, and he's doing it. If you check the Palestinian press, they're going to have demonstrations and rallies on September 21. They're going into all the schools. They're putting up the posters. They're going to be uh, gathering themselves in front of UN offices. It can be a big day for the Palestinian people, and he will have organized it. Not Fayyad, not Hamas, not the United States, not Israel, not the European community. Mahmoud Abbas. The other thing that's kind of interesting that's happened in the last week, I'm, I don't mean to go over time, I won't, but, you know, when uh, Netanyahu had, when the Israelis had trouble in Egypt, Netanyahu called Tantawi and nobody answered the phone. It rang for two hours. They couldn't get in touch with Tantawi in Egypt. So he called the President of the United States, the President answered the phone, and the President called Tantawi and Tantawi answered the phone. So you want to talk to Egypt, you got to have the United States to do it. And it used to be for Netanyahu, if you wanted to convey a message to the Palestinians, you pick up the phone, you call Barack Obama. Now you're going to call Mahmoud Abbas. That's how he figures it. Because the United States is not going to deliver Abbas on this one. Abbas is going forward with a statehood, despite the pressure in David Hale and Dennis Ross. 
You want to talk to the Palestinians? You're going to actually have to talk to them. I think that in some subtle ways, this also strengthens Abbas's hand in the Arab world. You know, when the, when the Libyans came to Doha in March, the National Transition Council, they sat up on the seventh floor of the Sheraton, did their consultations there, and they would talk to the Palestinians, and they'd say, and they've said this recently, almost publicly, you know what you got to do? What is it you don't get about this? Well, 100,000 people in Tahrir Square changed Egypt. We have 30,000 dead on our battlefields in Libya, but Gaddafi's gone. <coughs> We took, we took this guy, this little shit in Tunis, and we put him in a retirement home in Saudi Arabia. What is it you don't get about this? About sacrifice for your country. You want to do something? You want a Palestinian state? Work for it. And I think now, Mahmoud Abbas in this, I'd be the last person in the world to praise him. But this is brilliant. He's joined the Arab Spring. The Palestinians have joined the Arab Spring. And the United States looks weak, and we are, and feckless, and we are, and we can't deliver. This is a good move. Thank you very much. Thank you. No, I don't need to. Thank you. No, I won't take 10 minutes, Don. We'll leave more time for um, uh, discussion from the uh, audience. Uh, I want to raise some specific points and some specific questions that I think uh, do pertain to uh, at least a good deal of what's already been said. In regard to the possible resolution, and I underline possible resolution, hasn't been presented yet, to the United Nations, there are many things we don't know, of course that are most important. One, we don't know what kind, what borders. We don't know what the language of borders is going to be. Is it going to be 1967 borders? Is it going to be 1967 borders with swaps? And if it swaps, uh, what do those swaps mean? Um, what about the 400 to 500,000 Jewish settlers in the West Bank? If there are going to be any kind of borders of a Palestinian state, is this resolution going to say anything about those 400 to 500,000 settlers? Well, I, I'm going to suggest uh, that it better say something about those 400 to 500,000 Jewish settlers uh, if uh, there's going to be any kind of um, uh, uh, realistic putting uh, of this resolution. And then we don't really know what kind of state is really going to be asked for. Is it going to be, we can assume that Palestinians are going to ask uh, or mean to ask for an independent sovereign state. We also should know that since um, the government of the state of Israel in the early 1990s began to use the word state for Palestinians, which they had not used before, uh, they meant in that definition something quite different than an independent Palestinian state. Their definition was really a definition that had been given by a Palestinian uh, prime minister uh, long before the Israelis ever used the word state. Menachem Begin talked about it uh, just before uh, the Camp David Agreement uh, when he really uh, talked about Palestinians ha uh, having uh, local rule 
in those areas of um, occupied territories that the Israelis go- that the Israeli government uh, would agree uh, to move off of local rule, local schools, local police force, local governments. But uh, that would be the case so long as uh, there was no threat, threat being defined and determined by the Israeli government to Israel. If it was determined there was a threat, then Israel would come in and stop whatever Israel wanted to stop, which really meant that Israel would indeed still retain sovereignty. Well, are we going to have in this resolution or in the discussion after a resolution, if it's put, are we going to have? Are we going to have a? Are we going to have some specification of this kind of problem? from the Palestinians in terms of what they've said they wanted, an independent sovereign state. And then there is, I would suggest to you, an even bigger problem involved. And Fauzi al-Azmar mentioned it when he mentioned the term Zionism. Israel is a Zionist state. Now that means Israel is an exclusive Jewish state that by law grants rights and privileges to Jews, not granted to non-Jews not granted to the 1.3 to 1.4 million Palestinians who are citizens of the state of Israel. By law, they do not have all the rights and privileges that Jews have. Let us assume for a moment that there would be, I'm not assuming this, but let's assume for a moment that there would be a Palestinian state in the West Bank, in the West Bank and Gaza, in part of the West Bank, in part of that territory. Well, that Palestinian state is certainly not going to be a Palestinian state, I don't think, that uh, uh, includes any part of Israel of pre-June 1967 borders. Well, then, what about the problems of, of those Palestinians who are within the state of Israel? If we ask what about those problems, we could say their problems could increase. We have a foreign minister of the state of Israel today who, today, this is not 1967. He's talking about transfer of Palestinians. If you don't like it here, he means this state, pre-June 1967 borders. If you don't like it here, well, he'll be able to say, if there's a Palestinian state, you can go to your Palestinian state. That doesn't help those Palestinians who are in Israel pre-June 1967 borders, that certainly does not help them acquire the kinds of rights that they are asking for, that they deserve. And then let me also say that, well, in terms of this resolution, there's something else we don't know. We don't really know to what extent Hamas and Fatah have agreed as to what they're even going to propose. Mark Perry pointed out that, well, this may be a deciding, moving forward moment for Mahmoud Abbas. What's the Hamas leadership going to say? What are they saying now? What have they said yesterday about Mahmoud Abbas, about that government, and especially about Fayyad, who uh, uh, they've made a stipulation that they don't want him involved at all in any kind of joint government or joint cooperation with Fatah. Well, if we don't have an agreement, a firm agreement, between Hamas and Fatah, how much can we really expect progress 
in terms of Palestinians moving forward, even in terms of what the Abbas leadership is talking about, a Palestinian state. Now, finally, uh, let me end with this. Uh, Fazil Osmar also talked about reality. We have a reality. We also should have a recognition of this reality. Right now, right now, in Palestine, Israel, that includes Israel, pre-June 1967 borders, West Bank and Gaza. We have a reality, and the reality is one state. There's one state. It's not a very good state. It's a pretty bad state. I think many of us, uh, those of us here who are sitting here would uh, probably agree to. But we have one state. Now, there is, there is a, uh, uh, one alternative of moving away from that situation is to advocate two states. My feeling is, today, that's not realistic. Uh, uh, whether or not we have a resolution. If that's not realistic, then I would say it's also not realistic to say we're going to have overnight next year, maybe in the next decade, one state that is going to be a far better state for all the people who are there, Jews and Palestinians and a few others. But we could say that uh, since human rights is indeed a rallying point around the world, not just in terms of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Human rights is a rallying point for uh, people uh, uh, who have been denied human rights around the world. Well, if we have one state, and we would like to think of making one state better, then we could think of the alternative of moving. Slowly it would be, but moving in terms of talking about human rights deprivations, specific human rights deprivations within all of Palestine, Israel. Uh, that might be an alternative kind of idea to a resolution for a Palestinian state in the United Nations. Thank you. We promised you five perspectives. I think I counted even more. Um, I think the panel might ask, want to ask each other questions. I, I will restrain myself. But if anyone on the panel would like to ask any other panelists a question, please do. And then we'll go to, the, to all of the rest of us. So you oppose the you, you oppose the UN resolution, Mark, don't you? Um, I abstain. <laughs> I'm not going to oppose it. If Palestinians want to do it, if there's a right of self-determination, they should be able to do it. I don't oppose it. Um, do any of the rest of you want to ask any other questions of each other? Well, I'm, so, I'm sorry, on the panel. Anyone? Um, okay, it's now uh, seven minutes after six. We have till 6.45. Uh, please uh, state your name if you wish. Uh, if you have a question or comment, you may have either. Uh, if you want to put it to a particular member of the panel, please do. And uh, I will be very generous but we can't have these questions and comments go on forever. Gentlemen in the first row, and then John. Uh, yeah, thanks. Uh, Could you tell Omar, us who you are, please? Omar Kami, the national newspaper. Uh, this, is, this is open to the entire panel. Uh, do you agree, uh, as Palestinians have warned several times, that this is the last chance for a two-state solution? Anyone? Mark, Jeff? Uh, do we have to move this? Uh, 
gadget around? If we, we want it recorded. We do. Would it be this down? mic or that mic? Do you want this? Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll just move yeah, it then. Yeah. Why don't you just take it out of the stand and hold mm -hmm. it? Okay? Great idea. Okay. I think that's absolutely right because I think that uh, Norton has just presented uh, an alternative view that's gaining great current for one simple reason, because the uh, failure of U.S. diplomacy, the intransigence of the Israeli government, uh, and the continuing expansion of settlement without any international community serious punishment uh, has uh, greatly diminished the prospects of creating a viable two-state solution. I think this is a moment uh, in a process where this probably is the last opportunity to put the issue of a two-state solution before the international community uh, in a way that will force the issue of whether or not there's going to be any teeth actually behind it. Uh, so, yeah, I, th I think this is a defining moment and that we're going to move on from here in a very different direction. I think Mark very much suggested the idea that um, that the whatever if the outcome at the United Nations goes poorly in the sense that there is a you know strong US Israeli arm twisting effort and this thing either gets watered down or doesn't move forward or if it succeeds as everyone expects and uh, then you get a harsh response on the part of the Israelis, cutting off funds to the PA, uh, activation of settlers' violence, things like that, then I think we're going into a third intifada, and that's where the Arab Spring issue, writ large, uh, will play out, and it will play out in both Israel and inside the Palestinian area. Could I, I just say uh, very briefly, um, I don't think a two-state solution is viable at all. Uh, and I, the reason why I think that is because if there were a two-state solution, the Palestinians would have to accept a, a very diminished state. There is nothing that, that can be done about 500,000 Israeli settlers on the West Bank. Uh, there's probably nothing that can be done about the right of return of Palestinians. So basically, I think the Palestinians are going to be confronted by a powerful Israeli uh, government, backed by a powerful United States government, and the only way they can go to a two-state solution is to accept an extremely diminished state. So, uh, I'm going to ask a question of all the panelists now, coming from what's just been said, and that is, uh, <laughs> and that is the following: If, 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 if the resolution is proposed, whatever the language is then what would the panelists here, or I'd even say anyone in the audience say, about an Israeli counterproposal that would say, well then, are you the Palestinians and are you the Arabs going to accept the legitimacy uh, of a Jewish state of Israel in pre-June 1967 borders? They have, many times. The Saudis did it. But in return? No. Wait a minute. They not. They didn't say. Didn't say the legitimacy. They didn't say what Netanyahu asked. They didn't say we accept the legitimacy of a Jewish state. They didn't accept that. They didn't say that. 
nor would I expect Palestinians to say that. Yes, you can have the mic. No, one minute. No, one minute. Oh, all right. If you watch, if you watch question time, the speaker says, order, order. Sorry, I thought he was said that's the audience. Fauzi, I did No, no, was going to speak first. You know, it's a... Maybe they did not, will not accept exactly the term that, that you uh, put Norton, but definitely the Palestinians uh, recognize um, that, and this is the basic, that Palestine belongs to two peoples. Without talking, in 1988, they did not talk about uh, uh, borders, but they accept that, uh, that the Israeli has uh, the right to be to be there. Now, if if, if 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 Netanyahu will come and say, "I want you to recognize a Jewish state," I think he will find some problems inside Israel within the Jewish community in Israel that they they are not defining themselves definitely just Jewish. They are we are Israelis, and they want to finish, you know, this this problem that. Uh, they are they are carrying for for years and years and years. This this is something that we we have to see how how it will uh, uh, the reaction of uh, of the Israelis will be. Um, John, you had a question. Could someone is there a, is there a mic that's going to be moved? Yeah, they, yeah, but they insist on a mic because oh, no, he's a gen I'm sorry, he's over, he's that gentleman over there. Okay. Okay, my name is John. He is, is the mic on? Oh, stand up. Yeah, and uh, Mark, I, I would just ask you and anybody else could comment. Sometimes when we talk about crises like this, we forget history. And so if you think about Israel and the Israelites and American Jews and maybe a great percentage of the American people, they tend to think from the Old Testament that this land from Moses to David to Solomon by right belongs to the Jews. And that's not just Israel, but the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. They should have it all. And I think people forget that when the Roman Empire extinguished Israel in 70 AD, and it took them a couple of years up to Masada in 73 AD, the Jews dispersed to all parts of the world. Well, who in the wide world of sports was living <laughs> in this Palestinian territory from 70 AD until 1948? The Palestinians. So the Palestinians, just in terms of history, can say, we've lived there a 1,000 years longer than the Jewish people. And no one ever talks about the fact that the Palestinians lived there from 70 AD until 1948, and they still live there today. Uh, this gentleman, if you, can I? We always pass the plate in church if you'll pass the mic. Thank you very much. I'm Benjamin Tua. I have a short comment and uh, a question. And the comment on the issue of the Jewish state is it's really a kind of made-up issue. Any state can call itself anything it wants. And if Israel wants to designate its official name as the Jewish state of Israel, it can do that. And the Palestinians will accept that. But Israel will not do that. So uh, it's a bit of a distraction issue. Uh, my question concerns the uh, 
issue of the day after the Palestinian resolution is accepted, uh, debated, and voted on in the UN. Uh, whatever the positions of Israel and the United States are, uh, they will have to accept the new reality. If they don't, uh, it's going to be disastrous for them. And I don't think the US is uh, looking for a disaster for itself, and neither is Israel. So while the resolution is a game changer, uh, and it will strengthen the position of the Palestinians, it's not going to be, uh, you know, lead inevitably to disaster. Uh, perhaps some of the panelists would like to comment on that. I'd like to pick up on that and ask Giraldi a question, if I may, Dr. Giraldi. I tend to agree with you. And for one thing, it depends a lot on the terms of the resolution probably being General Assembly or the Security Council or the U.S. to veto. Um, so the game will change, but it's not exactly clear you know, how dangerous it will be. On the other hand, uh, Dr. Giraldi made a point, and I think Prince Turki in the piece that, that Fauzi referred to in the New York Times made the point that this will isolate uh, Israel and the United States in its support of Israel even further, and in a sense it's, been, it's sort of an embarrassment to the U.S. Now I'm sure that this, and I certainly would dismiss Dennis Ross as irrelevant, but I think uh, the Secretary of State probably knows this because she's beginning to travel to, I'm just wondering, is there any way, this is a naive question, that the United States strike that, that is there any way that Israel and the United States can be impressed with the point you've made, which strikes me as being incontestable, how awkward and embarrassing this will be. Of course, it depends a lot on how much they can kind of tone down the resolution and, and what it will be. Is there any way, I'll put it as a question of prediction. Do you think that it will sink in in the next, it's probably an awful short time, that this is very unfortunate for the United States and Israel to be resisting this statehood uh, you know, proposal? Well, I think probably um, um, at senior levels in the, both the Israeli and U.S. governments, they're completely aware of these issues, and they, they understand them very well. But uh, I think there are two issues that then come into play. First of all, they do a, a political triangulation in terms of what they think is doable. That's clearly what Obama has done. Uh, well, both, taking both into account. And I think they've decided that basically – uh, it's, it's, there are no options for the United States except to support Israel. And, uh, and then secondly, I think they, they, they feel that once the deed is done, uh, there will be wiggle room. There will be ways to, to diffuse the issue, to play with the issue, to drag it out, to, to uh, throw in side issues that, are conf that confuse what the issue really is. I think they probably uh, believe that they can play that kind of uh, strategy in the long term. And that's, that's, that's something Dennis Ross, for example, is, is, is a master at, uh, not ever coming to any conclusion ever. So I think we'll see a lot of that playing out. Let me just add one yeah. quick observation. For a hook here. Okay, Jeff. Hello. Um, the the common feature of all of Shakespeare's tragedies is that he always wrote about people who uh, basically uh, failed to see the follies of their own ideological beliefs. And if you look through 
all of those tragedies, you'll find that uh, rarely is there anybody except maybe a little mouse standing on the sidelines commenting at the final moment. Is there anybody who comes across as a hero? Because the problem you're dealing with is a deeply entrenched ideology that blinds people from seeing the consequences of their own actions. And I think that's what we're seeing playing out here uh, in Israel right now. One of the interesting things that I've heard from several prominent Israeli demographers is that about one and a half million Israeli Jews have left the place over the last two, three year period. And uh, you don't see it in the census data because they don't renounce their Israeli citizenship. But if you follow where their children go to school, where they've bought primary residences, where they've transferred their money, uh, they're leaving in droves because uh, they're among the people who see that there is a tragedy unfolding here. And uh, unless there's a dramatic change in policy, uh, there's no good end in sight. I keep remembering uh, a book several years ago by several Israeli journalists named Murder in the Name of God, which went through the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin and made it very clear that at the higher political levels, uh, people who are now in power in this government were among the people promoting that assassination because of the Oslo agreements, whether you agreed with it or disagreed with it. So I think this factor of tragedy, as opposed to pragmatism and uh, muddling through or kicking the can down the road, is really what we're, what we're living through here. It may take a long time to play out, but I, I see no uh, good ending for Israel uh, unless they come to terms with this. Jeff, let me ask you a question. You're a shrewd person. Um, I'm sure that's, I, I don't know Israel very well, right? that's just a lawyer for the Middle East for the U.S. government in Israel is one of my countries, but um, I expect you're right about Israel, but what about the United States? I mean, how do you explain, I remember mean, reading Abbe Ivan's autobiography, which was very brilliant, and she said, my job is basically to persuade non-Jewish Americans to support Israel, and he succeeded. But having said that, it's not been <coughs> he said things are changing. How do you explain what I would almost call the, the, the sort of suicidal instinct of the United States just to follow Israel automatically? And why does that not broken down? I think the suicidal instincts are present uh, inside the Washington, D.C. beltway uh, to a very large extent. I, I drew a distinction between the views of some very prominent people in important governing institutions in this country who just don't happen to have to run for election every two years, four years, or six years. And I think if you talk to people at the Pentagon, you talk to people at the State Department, at the CIA, uh, people in many of the non-ideological think tanks around town, you'll see a, a view that's very, very different. And Let me push you a bit because take the Congress. Uh, it has an extraordinary number of, impressive number of Jewish in the House. But nonetheless, you get all these characters from Minnesota, I'm just making up this to Kansas, where John comes from, Minnesota, who historically were probably anti-Semites. Uh, now, Norton will tell you, well, they're Christian Zionists, but that's a small number. Why has, why do these sometimes pragmatic pre-Tea Party people, why do they so automatically support almost any initiative with respect to Israel? I mean, how clever can APEC be? I mean, why does this, I, I really am genuinely asking you this question, why does this happen? Because there's no pain in not. <laughs> because there's no pain in not supporting. Why would they, why would you vote against Israel in the Congress? What? What do you gain? The votes of Palestinians? What Palestinians? The Arabs. 
You know the Arabs, six million Arabs who don't want to have anything to do with this? You go to Dearborn Mission and go, uh, uh. I don't know, maybe this, is, maybe this isn't, you know, the vote's going to come. What are you going to do? Are we going to sit in front of our TVs and watch who votes? Who cares? I, what I am kind of puzzled by is why the United States made such a big deal out of this. Out of the statehood. Yeah. Why, what if the United States said, yeah, go ahead. We'll vote, you know, we're going to vote against it. Go ahead. But no, we sent, you know, delegation after delegation. We issued press releases about it. We had a State Department spokes. We had Obama. We sent Dennis Ross. We had David Hale. You know, I, what's, you know, they're going to have a vote on the UN, and the day, a day after the vote, there's not going to be a Palestinian state. There's not going to be a Palestinian state as a result of this vote. So I think almost the vote in the UN resolution is almost beside the point. The real action here is right now. And the real action is the United States is running around trying to convince people that this is a bad idea when it has absolutely no impact whatsoever. And I don't get it. Who's running this foreign policy? You know, we have seen the Arab world through the lens of Israel for 30 years in that straitjacket, and we can't quite get out of it. We talked about Mubarak. We described Mubarak as a moderate for 30 years. We actually started to believe it <laughs> because he supported Israel. Now we have to come up with a new foreign policy, and we haven't yet. And this is part of the painful process where the administration ought to be sitting down and saying, um, how do we deal with the Arab world now? What are the important, what, what do we do? What kind of policy do we fashion? How do we talk about democracy? Do we talk about democracy? What about Bahrain? It's easy to be against Syria, but Bahrain, where a fifth fleet is? All of these kinds of meetings, you know, they, have, they had summits on jobs. There's not been a summit on the Middle East. Nobody sat down for day after day after day and hammered out what the policy, the foreign policy is. They might now. They might have to. We have 20 more minutes, and I'm not going to let Norton comment on the Mark Perry right away. I'd like to get participation from the non-paying audience. Uh, yeah, please, right. who has the mic? There's a gentleman here in the second row. There's a lady. And then there's a, another, well, we'll have to so it's There's a lady you can't see. It's over there. I'm Jim Amy, formerly with the State Department. I'd like to ask him. Is, is the mic on? I'd like to ask Mr. Steinberg uh, if he could chart a way uh, for us out of this tragedy that he uh, anticipates based on decisions that will be made by Israel and us as well. Is there a way, and how do you see uh, that tragedy being avoided? I'm not sure it can be, but I, I want your I, I think that uh, for one thing, um, if the United States were to make an announcement that there's been a reconsideration of policy, a review of what the president himself said during the campaign in his Cairo speech, and that uh, on better deliberation, the United States uh, will not uh, vote no, will not veto a Security Council resolution for full membership, uh, and, you know, the, these things are not irreversible. What we're talking about is a traje trajectory based on a presumption that we're going to continue down the same destructive path. 
Um, there's another issue, I think, which is something that uh, I've been involved in for a very, very long time. Uh, back in the mid-1970s, um, colleagues of mine and I put forward a proposal. We said, look, Middle East is a rough place. Uh, you know, after the collapse of the Ottoman Empire at the end of World War I, you had Sykes-Picot. Uh, at the end of World War II, uh, the exit strategy was called partition. And so we've had a permanent running sore created by this concept of partition for the last 60 years. George Marshall, who was Secretary of State back at the time of the UN resolution, basically said partition is going to be a nightmare. It's going to be a permanent conflict. And damn it, he was right. Um, so there are other issues on the table. Um, there is an urgent crying need for economic development and cooperation. Anybody who's looked at the geography of the area encompassing Israel, Palestine, Lebanon, Jordan knows that there's a natural economic cooperation and integration there. And back in the 70s, we were proposing that you had the Arab oil windfall. Why not create a development bank for the region and put the Israeli technological capabilities to work developing the area as a whole? Egypt has a semi-skilled, very large labor force. You've got water projects that have been designed and on the table for decades. And maybe if people start actually experiencing the process of improved conditions of life together, some of these intractable political issues can be resolved over time. The idea of defining this as a strictly political issue as opposed to an issue that gets down to much more fundamental questions of people's conditions of life. What do people really want? In the United States, they want jobs. They don't want this party or that party right now. They're concerned about bedrock issues, and they tend to far too often be ignored in the course of trying to solve, you know, break Gordian knots on the political level. So we used to do that. The United States used to go around the world figuring out how we could be helpful on those kinds of key development projects that would make things work. We did it in Afghanistan in the 50s and 60s, and you had a perfectly stable, not a great modern country, but a nice stable place. We built roads and we helped build water management projects and stayed out of the politics. The Russians came in. Thanks for, your, gonna, thanks for your answer. I must say, uh, I'm not myself persuaded that those kinds of economic steps uh, uh, would really help resolve the, the, the issue that we've been facing all these years. And that I think is very likely heading toward just the tragedy you mentioned. Uh, whatever we do at the you know, I'm sorry that I'm going to call the lady behind you in a moment and then this gentleman, but I'm sorry that Issam Saliba, who's on our council, is not here because he has an idea rather plays off Jeff's uh, insight that confederation, in his case, a confederation between a Palestinian state, Pache Norton, uh, entity, and an Israeli one, whether with Arabs in it or not. Uh, and he has very clever ideas about it, and there have been proposals of the kind that Jeff has proposed. And you think of these little places, Israel is little, Jordan is little, Palestinian entities even littler, but Lebanon is little. And because if they could live together, I realized that if you're sort of a realpolitik, geopolitical type, you kind of dismiss that. I was in the aid program, and I think we did have the optimism that Jeff talked about after the Marshall Plan, point four, but we seem to have lost it. Um, the lady behind, is it the lady behind? No, that's, that's the lady. 
I'm sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, this lady. My name is Mary Listen Cole, and um, I'm an independent observer researcher. I've been in Washington now three years. And my question, oh, well, first of all, gentlemen, I think you've done a marvelous job presenting, you know, every point of view. I especially liked your Mr. Norton Mizvinsky, I imagine. I do think that one state solution might work if, you know, give them an offer they can't refuse, I say. But that's, again, you know, something to discuss. And what I don't understand is, like you brought up the issue, what, what kind of resolution are they going to come up with? Uh, you know, do they have a constitution that they've prepared or are working on? You know, are they taking the Federalist Papers into consideration in, in, in devising, you know, a state like the United States became because of the Federalist Papers, I say. But my question really is this. Uh, and I think Mr. Perry or Steinberg or, or Geraldi might know who is on the United States Security Council? Who are the members and how many the are United there? The United Nations Security Council? The UN? You, UN. The United, yes, the United Nations Security Council. Like who would, who would come up with that veto that you are assuming they US. might or might not? U.S. will veto. Yeah, U.S. is the veto. U.S. will veto. So who, who's, who's the representative right now that will go on the United Susan States? Rice. Susan Rice. Susan Rice. Right, right. It's who, Susan Rice? Yeah. Susan Rice, okay, I think I've heard of the name. Well, okay, that was, that was it. And, and like I said, thank you. I think you've all made very good points and uh, they should all be taken into consideration. Thank you very much. This gentleman in the front had a question. Well, the reason I asked you about the, the, whether you asked about the United Nations Security Council, I teach international law at Georgetown, and I had a student who uh, thought that uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski was the Secretary General of the United Nations Security Council. So I, I, I've lived with that. Um, sir. Yeah, my name is Mark Danner, and I have a question that deals more at the societal level. Um, and if you take the analogy of a human body that's been exposed to poison, over time, whether it's nicotine or mercury, little by little, the, the toxicity grows in that body until the body collapses or, moderato, or becomes uh, moderato, moderato. or is rejected. So, when I look at the body politic in Israel and I see generations of toxins, I mean, we're talking probably four generations of Israeli men who've had to serve as occupiers and brutalizers. At a certain point the body rejects that. At a certain point, the body turns on that. And um, that's a very propitious time for good leadership to take advantage, to see that this is a, a turning point, or it's a time for total breakdown. But uh, I think back to, for example, the uh, moment in South Africa when F.W. de Klerk realized that man, we just can't, we can't continue this, this uh, apartheid regime in the Afrikaner dom uh, dominion. Um, do you see any of you who've looked at the Israeli uh, current crop of leaders, especially those coming out of the military and intelligence and security services, a possible F.W. de Klerk type who realizes our body politic is so poisoned, they can act almost in a prophetic leadership role. Is, is there a, a hope for such a, a leader to step forward? Anyone on the panel would like to yeah. speak to that, hopefully? Or anyone else? Uh, Zippy Livney would be a possibility. I mean, she's, uh, you know, you have a you have a, a syndrome that 
is in part of the pol political process here, which is that people believe one thing. Uh, they believe when they're in office, they believe a thing and they say something else. And as soon as they leave office or are voted out of office, they start to speak the truth. And we see that all the time in American politicians, and, and we see that also in Israeli politicians. Uh, the head of the Mossad, Mayor Dayan, uh, has been saying some really incredible things about, hey, Iran doesn't threaten us. Uh, you know, uh, there are a lot of truths there that are understood by everyone, but they don't have the courage to say it when they're, they're in office. Uh, so, yeah, there are Israelis that have figured all this stuff out, probably lots of them. But the, the ability of them to survive the political process and get into a position where they can actually do something is pretty much like the analogous process here in the United States. The Middle East, you know, we all believe in democracy, and yet, ironically, democracy kind of petrifies American politicians. Democracy seems to petrify Israeli politicians. Democracy, as you see it in the Arab Spring in Egypt and elsewhere, doesn't look wholly propitious these days, so you really, and I'm, we're a believer in democracy because as Churchill and others pointed out, everything else is worse, and yet it's pretty bad. Fauzi. Yeah, well, uh, you know, th th there are a lot of uh, military people and uh, other people that they have uh, said uh, something that can contribute to a real peace if they, if, uh, if they wanted it, but to, to reach that point, they had a bad example, which is Rabin. I mean, anybody who will think to, to take a mild way of uh, solving the problems or recognizing the Palestinians' right in Palestine has to pay a price. And, and that's what, uh, in the back of the mind of most of the uh, Israeli uh, politician or who are looking forward to uh, for offices I thought it was pretty noteworthy that uh, at the tail end of the Arab Spring you had the Israeli summer and uh, just two Saturdays ago you had about a half a million people out of a population of about seven million total turning out in Tel Aviv and a few other cities uh, over some very, very bread and butter issues, uh, including, you know, issues that go to the heart of this whole uh, Zionist model, namely that if you want to move to the West Bank and have 12 kids, um, you're going to be on easy street because the government is going to pay for everything. And if you're a middle class or lower middle class or working class person living inside the 67 borders of Israel, things are not that great. There's a super wealthy class that made a ton of money creating a real estate bubble who are big financial backers of, uh, of Netanyahu. And a lot of Netanyahu's own political base turned out in these demonstrations. In fact, I think Mark told me that one of the banners was put Netanyahu to sleep, wake Sharon up. So, you know, you've got, yeah. So, I mean, I think that, that yeah, there, there's institutions in Israel that are a lot more sane than the politicians. And it's, uh, you know, there's a real kind of a mirror of the problems that we're seeing here in the United States. And I, I, when I talked about tragedy, I was not speaking exclusively about Israel. I was talking very much about 
the situation here, which has far more profound implications globally if it goes in that direction. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm optimistic that there are certain basic indignities, economic and political and human rights issues that uh, are now radiating and reverberating. And that uh, the fact that it erupted inside Israel tells me there, there's something there. And I think there's people who are gonna either have to make the choice of uh, exodus or actually fighting for something better, otherwise they're doomed. Uh, we have uh, five more minutes. I think Mark wanted Go ahead. Is there something else from the audience? Somebody else has something to say? I'm going to call on Norton Okay, then I'll take one. Um, let me provide a, a little counterintuitive. <laughs> Norton. You know, there was another banner in, in uh, Tel Aviv that said, Walk like an Egyptian. <laughs> They didn't, though, did they? <laughs> not, not, really, not really. Um, let me provide a kind of a counterintuitive way of looking at this, just a suggestion, and I can be wrong. What if this isn't a crisis? What if um, we don't have to choose? What if we can do what we've done for 50 years in this country and in the Middle East, and that's kind of limp along? I've been to the West Bank a lot. I lived there for a while. It is possible to live in the West Bank. It's possible to get up, get in your car, go to your job, go through a checkpoint, deal with the electricity going off, go home, go to a bar, uh, go see your friends, watch television, make sure you're, I mean, you can live under the occupation. You can do it. And people, and people have done it, and it's, and it's possible. And it's, it's possible that on September 22nd there will be an uprising in the West Bank, but it's possible there won't be. And that Net, the second thing I would suggest is that Netanyahu succeeded. He didn't demand that people recognize Israel as a Jewish state because he thought that they would. He demanded it because he knew they wouldn't. And he could stand up and say, see, the obstacle to peace. He didn't demand that Hamas accept three conditions because he was hoping they would. He demanded that Hamas accept three conditions because he knew they wouldn't. He wants the occupation to continue. He wants to continue settlement building. He wants the West Bank. That's it. What is it we don't get about this, right? So, and the Palestinians aren't going to suddenly gain arms, march an army into Tel Aviv. It's not going to happen. Maybe another million and a half people will leave Israel, but maybe they won't. So this is going to be, I think what we're seeing maybe is a continuation again of a long, difficult, twilight, uncertain, uncomfortable, painful struggle that could take another two generations. But it won't, it won't end the world. It won't be a crisis. American foreign policy won't collapse. Israel won't collapse, the Palestinians won't suddenly get rational. And that's, I mean, that may be the worst news, but it's possible. I thought I was going to be depressed by Jeff Steinberg, and now I'm going to be depressed by I'm not so sure that's depressing. We're going to end with Norton, President. And Norton, please don't depress us too much. <laughs> we have two or three minutes, and then we're going to call the meeting. Yeah, good. 
Well, I could hardly say anything more depressing than Mark Perry just said, but I also would like to say, well, but I'd also like to say that uh, I agree almost fully with what Mark Perry just said uh, in terms of, uh, uh, of what really um, uh, is, mo is likely to happen. Uh, but I'll just say a few other specific things. One, um, in terms of uh, Jeff Steinberg saying Obama uh, might be able to change things if he uh, stood up now and made a speech or did more than make a speech and change policy uh, and so on, I, I think that um, uh, that could conceivably be the case. But why is it not going to happen? Why do I think it's not going to happen? Well, I could then refer to uh, uh, the rest of the statement of Jeff Steinberg, that there are all of these issues, economic and other issues, that are terribly important in this country. And what we should know, it's pretty obvious, that uh, Obama is far more concerned with those problems and with getting enough support in Congress to do what he wants to do with those problems rather than, than uh, take the chance of losing votes by changing policy in regard to backing Israel. And we have one thing that just happened yesterday uh, that underlines this, and that's that uh, um, uh, replacement congressional election in the District of New York, where for the first time in I don't know how many decades, the Democratic candidate lost, and that Democratic candidate lost because the Jewish, most of the Jewish voters in that area, which is predominantly Jewish and backed Wiener before, of course, predominantly Jewish, they believed rightly or wrongly, I think wrongly, but, but they believed that Obama was against Israel. And they believed Obama was against Israel because they were thinking Israel is, uh, the position of Israel is the position of the Israeli government. And for the first time, the Republican candidate won, and that means that Obama now has one less vote in the House of Representatives, and that underlines why he probably is not going to change whatsoever, regardless of whether there's a resolution in the United Nations or there's not a resolution, or regardless of what happens the day after, the week after, or perhaps six months or more after that resolution is passed. And finally, I can't help but end on this. Um, uh, uh, Israel's asking, Netanyahu's asking, Palestinians and the Arabs to accept the legitimacy of the Jewish state, I'm sorry, it's not a distraction. I think that Mark Perry said it correctly. He did it because he knew that Arabs wouldn't do it and that Palestinians wouldn't do it and that that gave him that arguing point and he also knew it was fairly obvious that that arguing point is a very good arguing point, right or wrong, and I think it's wrong, in the United States, especially with those lobbies that have been so successful in manipulating American votes. So if uh, he makes that argument and uh, knowing, again, it's not going to be accepted and knowing that that's probably going to help Israel, his Israel, in the United States, especially with the present Obama government that in terms of actions has done everything that Obama really has wanted, regardless of his words, well, I think that gives us some answers to some of the issues that have been raised this evening.
I'd like to leave the last word actually to our co-host, uh, Mr. Frank, John Post Franklin. Do you want the mic? John Duke Anthony, uh, just a philosophical contextual note here. Uh, I think the two most profound questions asked by the audience were one by Mr. Donna, who uh, focused on when, why, and where, and whether there will be the outsized uh, leader, uh, Israeli, American, Palestinian, uh, who will break through this uh, lockdown. And uh, Jim Amy's question of uh, how to see a way forward through this looming, seeming, almost certain tragedy. Um, my view would be to provide the following context, that last century, 13 empires, 13 occupying powers bit the dust. Every single one of them said, we will not leave. This is ours by right. Uh, we can see the insurgencies in its last rows. All we need is more time, more space, more resources, more dedication. We can't give in, we can't give up. Have to stay the course. Every single one of them uh, gave freedom to the people that they occupied to think or to conclude or imply that in this case the Israelis are any different or that we in backing the Israelis in this regard are any different is uh, a fool's mischief flying in the face of what I just uh, mentioned. Now in the case of those 13 empires that bit the dust, you had the lions of Winston Churchill. He was thrown out of office, prescient, the person of conviction and conscience in leadership during World War II. Uh, but his place was secured in history. He said, I did not run to preside over the dismantlement of the British Empire, but he did. And likewise, a towering giant such as Charles de Gaulle, uh, who was the one who could cut the Gordian knot uh, in the case of France and Algeria. If you look at the map and you're French, <laughs> you can understand why continuity of comfort with regard to continuing to hold on to Algeria would be logical and natural and, and normal there. Uh, but he cut the Gordian knot there. But not until one out of 8.5 Algerians was an orphan between 1954 and 1962. But imagine had he not done that. He actually went to Algeria and told the Pied Noir that he would stand with them, that he would never sever France's claim to Algeria. That got him elected, and he did it. And the Algerians and the French, the world is arguably better off. In the case of Vietnam, uh, never once did the South Vietnamese government or the uh, North Vietnamese ever once recognized the right of the Republic of South Vietnam to exist. And yet we negotiated with them in Paris for weeks and months on end. 58,000 names here, not far from here, more than a million Vietnamese. But imagine had we stood on that that we will not recognize uh, Hamas, which is the analogy of it, because they don't recognize Israel's right to exist. So these individuals will come. It's not a question of whether, it's a question of when. And uh, it was right to mention a de Klerk, a person of overwhelming conscience who cut the umbilical cord to the uh, positions with which he had been identified for all of his professional career. 
uh, a Mikhail Gorbachev. One day there may be a, a statue to him in every small American town in terms of his outsized uh, role. So these individuals will come. They're not here yet. Um, and we have, in the case of Obama, if he's a second term president, when he reiterates his oath to defend and protect the Constitution of the United States, he's a constitutional lawyer. He's taught constitutional law. It's in the American Constitution, Article 6, that all international conventions and treaties and laws in which the United States is a sovereign signatory are the supreme law of the land. They are superior to federally enacted legislation. We are a member of the United Nations by treaty. And in the preamble is the inadmissibility of the acquisition of territory by force. We are members of the Fourth Geneva Convention of 1949 by treaty, and which could not be more clear as to what is prohibited and what is allowed of an occupying power. Now, here's an individual who all he needs say is, I will henceforth enforce the Constitution, the oath of the highest office in the land. We will enforce these two international treaties to which we're sovereign signatories. It'll happen when and who and when remains to be seen. But it'll happen much like the Manhattan Project happened. People said it couldn't happen, but it did. When people went to the moon, people said it couldn't happen, but it did. Well, we hope it will. We, we all hope you're right. Okay. Yeah, well, that note, thank you very much. Yeah. 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 Yeah.